here we are again, Steve Dunn Podcast. I am joined today by Matt Cosper. Matt has been creating original works of theater in Charlotte for over 20 years, initially through a group called the Machine Theater, and more recently, a collective known as XOXO, of which Matt is the artistic director. I caught Matt at an interesting moment as he reflects back over his artistic career, what it means to be the leader of a collaboration, and as someone known primarily for theater, what role writing and filmmaking might play in his future. I enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. I joked the other day with a friend of mine on Twitter. I was like, I need to get like one of those squads of people who go and um, like kidnap people out of cults and then re- like deprogram them. I need one of those for the theater to deprogram you from theater. Yeah. Like, why am I not making movies? Like, what if? Wh- why yeah. when I was a kid wasn't I like I should make movies? You know what? Yeah. If I made movies, I could be making art. Yeah. And I could. I could have like a nice house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Um, Probably. I have a, uh, I recall an interview with somebody, I don't remember who it was, but they they suggested that movies are actually the sort of the highest form of art in our contemporary world. That is, that the greatest artists of our time, the ones who will be remembered for centuries are the ones who are making movies. Um, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it that way before and I haven't, you know, I haven't really developed a, an opinion on that. Um, I but mean, it's. Uh, I think there's something to that. I think that. Um, Don't you think that you would have ended up making weird art house movies that n- nobody would ever go see? Man, David Lynch is doing just fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I, and then I'm not saying that I am at a level of talent com- comparable to David Lynch. But sure. That dude makes crazy movies. Right. And he's got his house in Hollywood, and he can make whatever. I assume he doesn't have problems like making projects happen. Right. And if he does, he's just like, well, I guess I'll go make some paintings for a little while or make a record. So you can do both. You can be true to yourself artistically and also have commercial success. We know that's true in the music world. Yeah. Right. We know that's true in literature. Yeah. Right. So I actually think that to get back to, I think, I think your observation is fair that in the past, I have been reluctant to try to monetize or I mean some of it is maybe conscious reluctance I think some of it also is just like unconscious uh, something else I've been talking with my analyst about is the uh, there is like this safety to creating underground yeah. niche art um, yeah, it allows me to hide. There's a risk if you if you endeavor to do something and commercialize it in some way. There's always the possibility that it's not going to work. It's my hope that the the coming decade sees me making work that uh, I can share with a larger audience. That's why I think. I mean, I, I I'm sure I'll continue to make performance, but I I do feel my uh, my focus shifting to. Um, I think I want to make a film. Uh, well, you know, it seems like a natural evolution. And, and in a way, it seems like COVID may be the perfect launching pad for something like that. Because 
the constraints that are placed on you as a creator actually inspire creation itself, right? Yeah. Like when you're oh, working yeah. under limitation, like if you got to finish something with it by a certain deadline, like yeah, it yeah. always gets done by that deadline, right? And yeah. you have a great rush of creativity, like just in time, right? You know? Yeah. And I think everything is like that. So if you find yourself, if COVID puts us, I, I was thinking about like, like um, plays, on, that are done entirely by Zoom, you know? Yeah. Like taking a traditional play and doing it by Zoom may not work, but if you had a sort of a Zoom native play, yeah. and, I, and I saw a couple of experiments in these. I don't know. Have you seen anything interesting, like technologically, that resulted from the, the COVID limitation? Um, you know, there's a, a group, I think they're called Fake Friends, that did a, a piece um, that was based on like the the Real Housewives uh, series, like TV series. But it was a sort of a deranged take on that. That was pretty cool. I have to confess, a lot of the like Zoom theater, I'm not a big fan of. I mean, because for, I mean, I think if you are able to create something in a digital space that leans into the liveness of theater, you're getting there. But like, uh, I'm just such a junkie for the shared experience in the same space, in the same moment, that the sticking point for me with theater on Zoom or digital theater is I just want to share, I want to breathe on people. Yeah. <laughs> and I want them to breathe on me. Yeah. You know, and like I appreciate and admire all the artists who are working really hard to try to figure out how to make theater. Um, and keep people safe. I appreciate that. And like, I especially appreciate people whose careers are in the theater who are like, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta keep making you work. You gotta find some way to um, keep doing it. But you know, with XO, I think we just kind of were like, well, if we can make stuff happen outside, we'll do that. Otherwise we don't need to be making theater. And I think that's like, on the one hand, it's a, it's a bummer to me that I don't, I'm, I don't make a living doing my art form. Um, but on the other hand, it's really freeing to say we make work when it, when we can and when we want to um, and haven't felt the need to make the pivot to to digital just to keep the, the lights the on. The lights on, whatever, right? yeah. You know? All right. Well, I appreciate that I'm meeting you at a, kind of an inflection point. Uh, this is, I mean, I'm not meeting you for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I'm meeting you today yeah. at this inflection point in your creative life, which I think is interesting. And so, hey, let's just make that you know part of this conversation that we're having, starting, if you will, with the first piece of theater that you created. And as opposed to uh, participating as a hobby or as a young actor, which I imagine is probably how you got your start, I, how uh -huh. most people do. Do you remember uh, the first thing that you made for yourself and what you were trying to do when you did it? Yeah, there's a. Um, well, I have two two answers to that. One, one of the first like theater memories I have was being in middle school, and the theater teacher, Mr. Stallworth, assigned us the task of bringing in a poem or something that we liked and we were going to stage it and perform it and being uh, the insufferable and pretentious uh, artiste that I think I've always been I brought in um, a poem by Arthur Rimbaud called A Season in Hell and I like staged a little piece of that in like seventh grade which is ridiculous uh, but then I guess while I was still in college, we were doing the farm theater um, 
which was a thing where me and some friends from Greensboro College would come back to Charlotte in the summers and produce plays. And um, we started those doing like, we did a production of Harold Pinter's The Dumbwaiter. We did some Genet, some Beckett. Like we did some pre-existing plays, but then we started creating work. And uh, I, I wrote and directed a piece called World Without End that was kind of a riff on um, Antigone, the Greek tragedy Antigone, um, but kind of also, it was a riff on Antigone filtered through my like recently discovering some sort of like downtown New York City, uh, postmodern avant-garde wankery. Yeah, um, do you remember how you discovered that? Yeah, so we, um, you know, some of it was coming from Alan in high school. Alan Poindexter would make some oblique references to where he was being, like, stuff that was inspiring him. But then when I went to college, I fell in with a crowd of older kids who were, um, specifically my friend Anthony Serrato was uh, a couple years older than me. Well, not more than a couple years. I was a freshman. He was a second-year senior. And uh, he was just super into uh, Richard Foreman, the Wooster Group, um, Richard Maxwell, these sort of like New York avant-garde folks, and started. Uh, he mo- he graduated and moved to New York, so we'd go visit. He was working for Richard Foreman, and I started seeing this work that was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, and I really hadn't understood before that that like, you know, I'm I'm only like 19 or 20. It hadn't clicked for me before then that like as a director that I could be a writer that's been an interesting thing throughout my sort of career like coming to terms with the fact that I think I'm that I'm a writer uh and it's funny because I'll meet people and they're or I'll talk to friends and they're like yeah you're a writer I always think of you as a writer and like literally for decades I I was like what no I direct stuff I mean I write it but then I direct it that's interesting for you to say that because all of the work has always struck me as having uh, words be an important part of the focus in the show. Not all of it. And yeah. I want to ask you about like a lot of the other elements that are also in it. But the words have always seemed to be right up front along with some of the other stuff. Yeah. And that's something I couldn't see about myself and about the work I was doing. And then I also feel like it's funny that that, that relationship with language because when I... I really started writing stuff. That first piece, World Without End, I, I was an experiment. I wanted to see if I could make my own show out of you know out of nothing. But I started really wanting to write plays because in my early life as a director, I had a tendency to um, take the plays I was directing and like chop them up and move the text around and like do stuff to them that is not necessarily fair to a living playwright. Uh, I was doing it more with dead playwrights, but still. I was like, if I, if you really are that unhappy with or dissatisfied with the texts that you're working with, maybe you should try writing your own. And I feel like I've always been a bit of a scribbler. You know, notebooks have always been really important to me and words and language, but it's only been, yeah, it's in the last 10 years or so that I was like, oh, I think, you know, actually what it was, April Jones, amazing actor. I was writing in my notebook 
and she came up out of nowhere and kind of said to me, you know, that's the thing that you're going to be remembered for. That's that's how you're going to make your mark. And I kind of was like taken back by it or just I didn't know what to do with it. But that comment like kind of haunted me over the next 15, 20 years. When XOXO creates a production, how, how does it begin? Uh, the development of our shows has changed. I've always ended up being the person who was writing stuff. And so there's this an idea, right? I'll be like, like Bohemian Grove, it was literally my parents have died and I don't know where they are. So I need to, I don't have a religious background to know what I think has happened to them. I don't sense them being just snuffed out and absent. What am I, you know, like there's a, this problem that you're working through. The idea usually starts as like an idea. There's something I'm, I'm really fascinated with. And the change has been that like, Whereas in the past, I would just start writing and then put those words in front of actors and see what happened. We've kind of reversed it. And there's an idea, and we'll start talking about that idea. And then the actors start improvising, start moving around. The way that you used to do it, where you would give them essentially a script, and then you would see what Is that the moment at which then the collaboration begins? Directors who think that there's just this thing that's in their head, and that's going to come out on stage through these puppets they're working with aren't very good directors where i think we have differed in the past is that the play itself the actual material is emerging from the group's work together Uh, even if i end up being the person who writes it all down it's emerging from this encounter that the group is having one of the things that i've noticed about your work is that uh, the movement of the body through space is an important, seemingly to me, of an important part of the creative, the overall creation. And I don't know if maybe in traditional theater, kind of part of the point is that everything is so intentional that you're not confronted with thinking about it, but your work actually confronts you with thinking about it. And a lot of your works incorporate elements of dance and movement that seem really deliberate. Uh, sometimes I, I think that uh, like high school English courses do us a disservice and uh, that we you, know, you study plays in those courses as, um, as, as literature. Right. When in fact a play is a blueprint for action. Theater is about the event. Like, like you do have to have words to have a novel, right? You don't have to have words to have a play. I am most interested in situation. Secondly, the basic fact of what the actor brings on stage with them it's their body it's their breath or voice and it's like their imagination and the imagination of the viewer and how those things can get tangled up the training that the actors do is is highly physical because the idea is that everything that you need as a performer is is here you mentioned uh bohemian grove that being Uh, the first production of yours that I saw, which began in a parking lot uh, where, as an audience member, we all got into a van and Mm -hmm. without knowing where we were going. Talk about non-traditional, right? You're, in a sense, you're... um, you're framing the audience's mind by, in the first place just by having this kind of open-ended adventure that where who knows where it ends. <laughs> you know what I mean? You literally don't know where you're going when you, when you get into this thing. I think that it, it's all connected to that idea that we talked about of the, um, the encounter being primary. The audience and the actor and the text. There's this triangle that's formed where 
the audience and the actor meet. These two groups of humans meet in space and the text is like the the medium of exchange. It's how they encounter. They're both encountering this thing. And so there's something I think really social about that. And there's something about the agreements that we make when we play together. And so in a traditional theater, if in traditional theater we have a really straightforward understanding of, of what those agreements are going to be. You're going to sit there. I'm going to stand here. There's going to be light on me. You're going to be in the dark. We know what our the rules of engagement are. I've always found it really interesting to go, well, what do we, what do we get if we start playing with that? We did a piece called A Guide for the Newly Dead. About three quarters of the way through, we slowly started bringing the house lights up. And what had been pretty clearly dialogue between the actors and, you know, amongst the actors started developing into directly asking the audience questions. And before you knew it, all the lights, you know, the, the stage lights are up, the house lights are up, and it's just people sitting in a room having a conversation about death and dying in the afterlife. So negotiating the agreements that we make. And you got to be careful with that in particular, oh, the yeah. audience participation thing, because that's like the one thing that people are afraid of yeah, yeah. when they're about, when they're going to uh, some, like some theater piece that's been yeah. billed as like avant-garde or out there, yeah, yeah. you know, or like who knows, like th that's what they're afraid of is that they're going to be yeah. pulled up on stage. Or it's going to become audience participation. Some people are okay with it. I mean, there's all kinds of risks associated with that. There's the unpredictability you've got, you've got on the one hand, you got people who are dying a thousand, deaths like terrified mm -hmm. that some actor's going to look him in the eye and ask him a question meanwhile on the flip side you got somebody who's like fondest hope has been they, they <laughs> think they should have been the one on stage the whole time in fact they get they've been working on a play for the last yeah. 30 years you know yeah. what i mean and like they'd like nothing better than to just get up and start you know taking over the production i think um you're exactly right and uh we've always been really careful a to not bill ourselves as like audience participation because people they either clinch up or they're like really prepared for their big moment and that's not what we're looking for and we found that the participation piece works best with a lot of lead up and a lot of gentle like like i said we didn't we weren't like who wants to come up on stage and talk about this right it was like the staging uh was was designed in such a way that I mean, if you were paying attention as an audience member, you're like, oh, they're sitting really close to us. But also the actors are seated and they're close. The light is soft. It's not like going into something harsh all of a sudden. Really, it's about tone. And it's about, I think actually, um, it's sometimes hard for me to talk about what I think I do well. But I think something that I've managed to do well in my work is to manage... Um, tone and manage bringing people into uncomfortable experiences um it has to be done deliberately and thoughtfully and with planning and intention yeah and it's not easy but it's it's another so it sounds like you were several years ahead of me in terms of figuring out uh what was going on in the in the changing theater world right but the the revelatory experience for me was a production in New York called Sleep No More, yeah, where yeah. you go in, did you see a show? Yeah. You, you go in and it's it's basically like a dance production. Um, 
Um, but you as the audience, you all, you're wearing masks and you can just wander freely around this like five story warehouse and just encounter the show and, and all these. I mean, I could go on and on about Sleep No More, but the thing about it that relates to what we're talking about now is that the people who put that on had a way of controlling the audience, right? At the same time, you were totally free to kind of wander around and explore the nooks and crannies yeah. of the space. They also had ways of making sure that you went where you were supposed to go, that you didn't go. And then at the end, they bring they have a really ingenious way of like bringing everybody down, yeah, yeah. of like concentrating the thing at the very end. But also, they have processes in place for if somebody gets rambunctious, you know, like there's a bar there and like you can yeah. drink and, well, and there's been sexual assault. There's no question that all manner of, yeah. of shenanigans has gone on in that production, but they have, they've accounted for it. They've figured, and I don't mean to suggest that it's perfect, but that's just one of the things that they've had to figure out. And so have you, when you are, yeah. when you're driving people around or you've had productions where you start out in a somewhat of a traditional theater space, but then at some point during the production, everybody just gets up and goes outside. Yeah, yeah. You know, things like that happen. And it's, um, so in this way, it's interesting because you're challenging the audience in its conceptions of uh, what a performance is. I don't know if you see it that way. I don't know if you see like that you're challenging the audience, but you're, you're definitely challenging yourself, right? Yeah. In, in order to account for all of that stuff. And, and how is that? Uh, it's hard. Yeah. I do think... Um, I think we're, I hope we're not uh, aggressively challenging our audience, but I do think we're inviting our audience to rethink what the experience of theater can be. Because I think a lot of people, um, like nine times out of ten, theater is not very good. And so people don't want to go see it. I mean, that's just like a sad fact. Like, Or they want to go see something that they know they understand. They're like, I'm going to go see the big spectacle. Great. I get it. But they're missing out on a truth that we're we're performing for each other all the time and we are at all times um at all times moments of theater and ritual and communion are are available to us it, it is imminent it is all around us and i think a lot of our work has been about reframing the mundane for people so that they can see you can enter into communion. You can enter into the sacred uh, anytime you want um, with just a little bit of practice. So that's about goals. But the other part of the question seems to be about uh, people moving and managing crowds. And I think there's um, some of that is about developing like really clear cues um, and being explicit with people. You know, knowing when it's important in the recording that they're listening to that you say stop at that stop sign and turn right, um, or um, having you know performers say stop there for a second. Can I help you with this? We're gonna we're gonna do this and then that. Like really clear communication, coupled with knowing when and where a little leeway is gonna not only be effective, well, not only be appropriate and, and okay, but actually effective. Because if it's just, if you're just herding people through yeah. the line at Disneyland, yeah. 
that's not transcendent. That's not an yeah. ama- amazing experience. Well, maybe the goal then is is to create uh, almost an illusion of choice in a sense. Like the yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I think that I've always remembered the way that this that sleep no more brings everyone together at the very end, and all they do is they really just start shutting doors. Like they just start yeah. closing out one by one. They very slowly but surely over a period, and I'm I don't know anything about the details of how yeah, they do. Yeah. I just know that as you wander around, eventually you by making your free choice about where to go, end up where they want you, right? Yeah, and it's a really cool moment um, where you, yeah, you do all of a sudden you realize I've been led to this place. Right. Everyone else is here. Right. Oh, shit. That seems like that's kind of like the gold standard of what you're talking about is for for people to naturally do the thing that they're meant to do without realizing that they're being uh, constrained. Yeah. And and I think there's a a challenge there, right? Because I don't, I personally don't, ever want to manipulate anyone um i think that it's i think uh, i place a high premium on both for audiences and artists uh setting up the parameters or setting up a situation in which something fruitful can occur you know um i'm like i said as a director i'm not like one of those puppeteer directors like i want to set up a working environment where really good people can do really good work. Now, sometimes I've had conflict with collaborators in the past who think that means they're in charge. Um, That's not, it's weird. I don't want to be in charge, but I don't want anyone else to be in charge Listen, man, I get it. Did did you ever see the documentary about the making of the Wilco record, Yankee Hotel Fox. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and there's the conflict. I think, yeah, I think the film is called uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart or something yeah. like that. They just happen to make a movie about the making of this album that then turned out to be a classic album. But one of the things that happens there is that there's this uh, the Jeff Tweedy, who's yeah. kind of like the, the leader of the band, is it's a collaborative exercise, and the people that he's playing with have great ideas. But uh, at one point, it gets to be a bit much for him. And the, the phrase that he uses is that there has to be a center of the circle, right? There, yeah. there is a center of the circle. And eventually, this guy, I forget the name of it, Jay Farrar, Jay, I think is yeah. the, the guy. Who, I don't know if it's Jay Farrar or Jay Son. Anyway, the guy, Jay, who yeah. he's having this sort of creative rivalry with, uh, eventually leaves uh, yeah. the band for that reason. And I, and I see what you mean in the sense that. Yes, it's uh, and I wondered about that with XOXO, right? Because you had described it was once this thing where you show up with a script and we we make my play together, and then at some point it turns into a more collaborative exercise, kind of from the start, at least maybe with the development of the script itself. Yeah. But you you're somehow the center of the circle, don't you think? Yeah, I'm un- I'm I'm uncomfortable with that. Yeah, but it's but it's true. Yeah. And um, it's always been a weird thing, especially, um, you know, I feel like the press, um, when they talk about EXO, uh, people want to interview me or right. talk to me or talk about me for whatever reason. Right. And I'm ambivalent about that because I have just for whatever reason, it makes me a little squirrely. Um, and there's definitely been people that uh, I've worked with who I think also are like, why is Matt always getting all the attention? Yeah. Um, but also, I just think it's distracting. It's, but I do think, and I've worked with um, or sat in with theater companies who are like, uh, like super democratic. Like they vote on every single choice that gets made in the piece, and I, I think they make interesting work. But it's different. It's different. 
and I think um, if anything, what I'm doing is I'm saying, look, I'm really good at getting a group of people together who are really good. Like yeah. I'm really good at, at putting together a very strong team. Yeah. Well, and the people have different strengths, right? Yeah. Like you've got, um, I don't know all the names of all the people, but you've got at least one guy on there who's like just an outstanding dancer, uh, really great moving his body. And yeah. then you've got people that are that can really sing well. And uh, each contributes. Um, I, I used to love, uh, I'm not really, I'm not on um, nearly as much social media as I used to be, but like one of the few things that I missed <laughs> was kind of hearing about like what's going on at EXO rehearsal these days. Like you guys are like, I don't know, like fighting or you know, like physically yeah, like yeah. doing like martial arts or something or jumping up and down <laughs> or you know, like whatever it was. It seems like you have this team that um, is well equipped to contribute in its way. And I don't know, man. You're you're you say that you're uncomfortable being the center of the circle, but at the same time, d doesn't everybody who's involved kind of get that? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's funny. Um, recently, if, when there's been conflict about it, it's been members of the company being like, "Just tell us what to do, right. man." Right. Right. <laughs> because yeah, exactly. I often, you know, and I there was a, a you know a thing where for a couple of years, and I think I'm still dealing with it we're sort of coming into awareness of my own privilege and my space uh, or my presence in creative spaces as a straightish um, white cis man. Yeah. And, you know, getting a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> I had to like really adjust my Twitter feed because everything I was getting was basically telling me that I should shut the fuck up. <laughs> Right. Uh, I should sit down and shut up. And like people who look like me had ruined the world. Right. And uh, there was no business. I had no business making art or having an opinion. And on the one hand, I get it. Like, I really get it. You're not underrepresented. You and yeah. people like you are not uh, unheard voices in the world that we live in today. Yeah. Um, and I, I think taking that very real uh, critique and like combining it with some mental health stuff that I've got led to like me uh, wanting to shrink in a, in a pretty major way and, um, and not, uh, not like not have a voice, not have an opinion, not have a point of view. And I think we're still working on, on like managing that as a company. Um, but I, there's people in the group. I, I feel like uh, John Pritchard, I think is the performer you're talking about is the dancer because that he that dude can move. He's also an amazing visual artist, and he doesn't believe me, but I think he's one of the best actors in Charlotte. Um, but he will often be like, "Please, man, just tell me yeah. what you want to have happen so I can do it." And I have to be like, "I have to be like, oh, it's okay." If the goal is to put something on stage, at some point it has to get done. Yeah, yeah it has yeah. to. Get Interesting that you bring up the question of privilege and identity because I've I've been on my own journey about that. I mean, I think anybody who's thoughtful and introspective at all has been on a journey uh, like that over the past several years, and it's 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 very unsettling, uh, or it has been yeah. for me, as someone who always regarded myself as being open-minded and uh, progressive and, uh, you know, like charitable and kind and thoughtful and sort of like to have my own just unbelievable ignorance revealed. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been really hard and a real struggle. And then ever since it's, I say ever since, like this is a, 
uh, an event that occurred in the in the past. Let's just say the beginning of this process of understanding began in the past, and ever since it's been um, it's been a challenge both to uh, take a step back when that's the right thing to do, um, to tentatively assert uh, that you know all, all perspectives, including mine, <laughs> are valid. <laughs> you know that they're yeah. uh, you know straight white men have done some some good things uh, over the years as well. But I think what what I'm confronted with now is no matter how we feel about it, like whether I feel bad about it or not. There is a reality of life um, and in business, including my business, where I have access to certain situations and actually I can be I can help in certain situations yeah, yeah. because of my identity, where as in uh, other contexts, other mediators, other lawyers may be more helpful than I because of their identities. There are contexts in which I can mm-hmm. be the helpful one because of my identity. And, uh, you know, I. I I, I can't I'm not gonna lie to you and say that like I feel bad about that, but it's just been an unsettling and um illuminating experience to just be aware of this stuff in a way that I wasn't before. Yeah. I think there's definitely been a um it's funny. I I don't think I could have named it for you in two thousand ten. But from the beginning, this specific, you know, machine into XOXO, there's been uh, a critique and uh, an interrogation of, of whiteness embedded in the work. I want things to be right, and I want things to be just for people who have been historically stepped on and used. And so I'm, I want to help how I can. But I'm also, selfishly, I realize that whiteness as a construct uh, is a sort of bargain with the devil that hasn't helped anyone except for um, like the super elite whiteness has required that my ancestors that my, my the people that came before me flattened themselves out my ancestors came from very specific places in Scotland in the Netherlands um, in France those are specific places that have due to frankly to processes around power and capital, and how um, how wealth is built, how power is maintained. Uh, those those cultures themselves were flattened out, and the deal was well. If you lose your history, if you lose your ancestors, if you lose where you really came from, we'll let you be in this club, where you get these privileges. Ultimately, ultimately, it's not worth it. Uh, A because it's immoral and wrong. What have what's been done? to colonized people and be because we've lost ourselves. How does it find its way into your work as a creative person? You know, I think um, it's a strand. There is a, I mean, we've made work that is pretty explicitly about that, whether it was, um, the first play I ever wrote was a play called Mum's the Word. And it was about, um, it was an absurdist play uh, about a sort of affluent Myers Park couple who um, decide that they're going to adopt um, uh, a baby from Africa because the mom wants to be like Angelina Jolie and right. really has that white savior thing going on. And the child that shows up is not an infant, but is rather a teenage um, 
Somali pirate. Um, and hijinks ensue, right? Um, and so it, that play was borderline offensive in a lot of different ways. Right. And, and you know, uh, that's come up again and again. Like, I can either make sure that my work is perfectly acceptable by all people. Nah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. No, or I even, can, even if you achieve that, first of all, you're not going to achieve that today. But even if you yeah. achieve that today, it's not going to be true tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, or I can try to make work where I... Uh, honestly and in good faith engage with questions about the world I live in. Cake is another example of a play that for me was explicitly about um, white supremacy, capital, and how... Um, now, Cake is one that was staged at the old location of Goodyear Arts, yes, right? The, um, Uptown Charlotte. College and, Street. And this is the one that, this is one of the ones that I had in mind when I described it, starting out in a, it, it existed basically in three different spaces, as I recall. You, you come into one space, and then you go you go on a journey outdoors, right? And then... Uh, and then you come back and you're in a different space of the of the building um, yeah. for the end of it. And so, yes, this was absolutely an exploration of uh, well, there are a lot of social issues explored in that yeah. in that one. Um, yeah, there was a lot happening there. Um, it's funny, too, because we already we always sort of I shouldn't say we I always conceptualized cake as being a companion piece to Bohemian Grove. So if Bohemian Grove was our play about heaven, Cake was our play about hell. And it was really interesting. You know, we didn't promote it that way, um, but it was really interesting to see the difference in people's responses to the two works. Um, people would leave Bohemian Grove just blissed out and really like uplifted and, 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 and pleased. Uh, the critical response was sort of the same way too. People would just love Bohemian Grove. I'm never gonna like, ever in my life 20 years now people are going to be like when are you going to do bohemian grove again um cake well i think i think it was a very strong piece of theater and i think there were people who appreciated that audiences were disturbed and audiences left the the performance feeling like i don't know and that was i mean that's by design but it was just funny to see that um and to experience it as someone who's, uh, yeah, someone who's making work to see how people respond to different things. Bohemian Grove was also like much less explicitly political. It was a more metaphysical thing. There was some like, I'm always going to have some kind of gesture towards uh, authority and uh, maybe a bit of a lampooning of authority. You know, Bohemian Grove had the kind of bumbling sheriffs who you're like following. Um, so, all right. So, Bohemian Grove. Let's let's just talk through it because this is like, if it, it's it's one example of a Matt Cosper led production that illuminates probably all the rest because there there are elements of it in all that you do. I think. Yeah. So one of the, the way it begins is as an audience member, you show up and there's Matt Cosper um, having you sign a waiver, <laughs> giving you a, a very uh, sort of you know kind of all shucks like, hey, I need to have you sign this waiver before we get in this van because who knows what's going to happen, right? And you're there with the other audience members uh, up to I guess 13, 14 people. You get yeah, into a, fi a 15 passenger van. And uh, as soon as we get in the van, you put in a CD and you start driving. And the CD uh, has uh, 
music and talking and sound effects and uh, and it serves as the background for this journey out into uh, sort of a rural area where you go to a kind of a farmhouse type yeah. setting you get out and then the whole rest of the play kind of takes place um, on a on a literal physical journey like you're walking around and, and at parts of it you're you're looking in on a house and the action sort of like going on inside the house and you're kind of walking around and seeing it and other parts of it you walk out beside a field and you're given uh, binoculars and you look through the binoculars and you see the action that's happening really far away and and then at one point you're invited into into a darkened space and you have kind of a one-on-one interaction and then at the end you're you're let out onto a, an open space where you just kind of are left by yourself with the others to just kind of reflect on what has happened and um and so in, it incorporates a whole bunch of the things that we've talked about, sort of the subversion of the traditional theater space. There's an area, there's a, there's a moment in which uh, the people do a dance. <laughs> they do, and then they do it again, right? Yeah, yeah. I, that's one of the things I've always told people, like when you go see an XO production, you're gonna see a dance, and then you're gonna see it again, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so with that, um, what is it, uh, what, what do you recall about that and the reaction to it and even contrasting it to other productions that you've been involved in? Because you saw, it sounds like something that you're, you're, you got kind of mixed feelings. Like people loved it, which is great. But at the same time, it sounds like you're a little bit tired of, be, of being told like how great it was. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, I feel now for, for people who like uh, musicians who make a really well-loved record and then, but they keep making other records, right? And people are like, "Oh, that's okay," but we really love that. that or, and if you one. go, you know, if you go see the concert or whatever, they're like, yeah. you know, they're almost like like checking their phones and like looking at their yeah. watch until they play the hit, exactly. and then everybody's excited to hear that. Bohemian them. Grove is the free bird of right. Uh, okay. My oeuvre. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think different musicians have different attitudes about that, right? I think. Some musicians are really resentful of that and really, uh, but others are like super thankful for it. You know, like they, it's nice to be loved, right? I, I complained about this to my friend Rebecca Henderson and she kind of like uh, scolded me. And she was like, you know what? You made something that people responded to and love. That's not guaranteed. There's plenty of artists who like are working and working and working and they're not ever going to make a thing that that people really, really loved. And so I took that and I, I have embraced it. But I think, um, yeah, I still like, um, that was such a, an accident in many ways. It was such a, like the, the stars aligned in just the right way. It's funny, we actually did it over one weekend in 2014. And, you know, it kind of invited some of the right people and so the ASC gave us some money to do it again. And we did it um, for a full month in 2015. But that's weird. That's, th- that's part of the reason why I'm starting to think about books and movies and, and stuff is because my most successful piece of work uh, was seen by maybe like 100 people. 100, yeah, 100 people. You know? Huh. The thing that, like, I mean, like, I feel is my contribution. Like, like we've made other cool stuff. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to talk smack on other work we've yeah, made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that I really, if you, like, had to pin me down, the thing that I would say is my contribution to the cultural landscape of the city, 100 people saw it. Which is also cool, though, because there's, like, this weird secret handshake thing where, like, I'll see people, 
um, meet each other at like a party or something and realize that they both saw that show and like they're instantly bonded. It's interesting, man. I, now I'm trying to remember how I happened to see that show. I, I don't, I don't even remember how I found out about it. Like I, I know that as soon as I heard that the idea was that you got on a van and went somewhere, I knew that I wanted to see it cause I thought that was interesting. And, and I, you know, obviously I went, I went with a friend of mine and, um, it absolutely um, is in my. I, you've had a very long leash with me ever since then. That was the first thing that I saw, and so ever since then I've seen everything that you've done that I could. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever, I've seen all your productions, but I've seen everyone that that I knew about that I could get to. Yeah. Um, certainly, there were moments of that show. The one-on-one inter, inter, interaction near the end was absolutely. You had a great actor for that, by the way, and Pete Smeal. He's yeah. the greatest. He really, he really is great. He was also in the Carolina Actors Studio Theater production of August Osage County, and that was a wonderful cast. Uh, that was probably my favorite production that we ever did as that group, uh, and he was in it, uh, and a, a big part of you know uh, the greatness of that. But anyway, that that um, that show uh, was. Uh, important to me i mean I, I don't i'm not even sure if we're sitting here talking to each other right now yeah, if, it, right. if it weren't for that you know what i mean because that that touched off like that my fandom of you uh, you yeah, know yeah. as as an artist and so um i guess maybe you could think of yourself as like the uh the band that came out with the record that was the big hit and then um you know but i don't think that's a bad thing for people to not like the new material as much like i think that's that's like kind of true i think of like most bands frankly i, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's maybe true of most but at the same time uh there are the new fans the people who come along later who never saw that show you just yeah. mentioned that you know only 100 people maybe ever even yeah, saw yeah. it there like there's a whole a whole group of folks who've never heard of the, of that you know who are into what you're doing now don't you think i do i do i think um also in the last 10 years, like after, since Bohemian Grove, we got, we slash I just got really interested in process and experimentation around process. And so the work became a bit insular. And I think people have enjoyed it. I think we've made really great work. I'm very proud of um, the piece we did for Boom in uh, it was the second time we did boom so it was uh, permanence the walking tour of plaza midwood with the headphones yes um i think if i had more bandwidth um i would i would we would be running that all the time i have to confess like that's another thing it's like the full-time job at latin directing plays teaching being an advisor like doing all the high school teacher stuff well that has been really positive in many ways um has also meant that um, my my creative life outside of school, while still really busy, I'm still like you know perpetually overbooked. I'm not doing all the projects I would like to. If I were just trying to run XOXO as my job, we would have permanence up all the time. Right. There's a piece of property, uh, another piece of property in York, South Carolina, that's got like this marsh and a lake on it that I want to do a performance on where the audience is like riding a boat through the swamp. Like there's so much stuff I'd love to do, but I've just, I found because of, uh, the realities of like, I am not independently wealthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I have a job that I, I love 
but that and it's not like teachers are not rolling in the dough and i just spend a lot of time there you know i teach during the day and then i'm rehearsing plays and stuff at night of course um it's had a real impact on my creative life that's also probably why lately i'm like maybe i should just be writing stories and novels like Mm -hmm. i can do that on my own that's right yeah Um, it doesn't involve anybody else necessarily and time and space i mean like this piece oh we got so excited about um this piece we wanted to do uh, another south carolina piece um taking people through this piece of property putting them on and off boats like feeding them like like cooking tea for them over fires like right. there's really like a lot of pretty uh mind-blowing stuff that is knocking around up here or in the sort of collective mind of the company that um we don't have the resources to do and that's like just how it goes. I think I made. Uh, I think Cake pissed off the ASC and Knight Foundation. They're never going to give me money ever. Why again. do you say that? There's a guy that told me. Um, what what pissed him off? I don't know about the ASC. Uh, I got the impression for like the Knight Foundation actually took me to Detroit for this conference to like be the example of like when you give someone a grant and they don't do what you want them to do. Um, they physically transported you. Yeah, I to went Detroit. and like I presented at this uh, Grant Makers in the Arts conference a couple of years after. What K. were you? All right, I got to hear this story, man. I mean, what were you supposed to do? <laughs> well, you know, I think this goes back to the um, the sort of like weird kismet or fate that allowed Bohemian Grove to come together made me a little cocky, and I was like, okay, we can definitely get. There's all this real estate uptown. The idea was for Cake to start at Goodyear. You take a little walk. And then you go into a high rise. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And this, like the last part of it's happening in a high rise, like well above the city, which would be so cool. Actually, now that you mention it, I, I seem to recall like trying to help you find a place like for yeah. that. Yeah. Like, I've, I've, yeah. And it's, no one. It's coming back to me now. No yeah. one could help me find yeah, a place. You couldn't. Yeah. Nobody would do um, it. ASC night. I asked like everyone. I was yeah. Like, Please. They, I want to do this thing. That yeah. We told you. We the, were you know, do. the perfect place that would have been ideal would have been like there's a secret floor at the top of the Bank of America corporate center where like only yeah. even, even the people that work there don't go there. It's yeah. like only the board and the, you know, the, that yeah. would have been like the perfect. Yeah. Right. For yeah. some reason, our little play about capitalism I, being a poisonous force. I still thought for sure <laughs> that there was going to be something like an office space that nobody. Yeah. I thought the the sweet well, spot there was going to be a place that wasn't va- that it wasn't with yeah. a, without a and tenant. And we were you know? encountering like, yeah. a vacant space yeah. and being like, we have money. Right. The Knight Foundation has given us. We just need the to money. rent it for like a couple of nights yeah, or something. Please right? let yeah. us rent it for just like a couple of nights a week for a couple like for like a month. And right. We'll. we'll We'll we pay you. We right. will pay you. Right. We have insurance or whatever. Yeah, we, exactly. We're so fully what, insured. Why didn't it work out? I don't think Just people could wrap their heads around what we were trying to do. Yeah. They were like, you want to put a theater in there? Yeah. And we're like, Well, no. kind of. We just want to have a play in there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing I kept saying. I was like, yeah. well, no, we're not trying to bring in curtains and chairs and like aisles and a stage. Like, we just want to have a performance. I think it's a tricky thing where like, I think our internet presence, uh, has always like pretty a- accurately reflected our aesthetic and our uh, intentions. But I also think you send like big real estate uh, guys from uptown a link to your Instagram. They're going to be like, who are these people? You just got to find the right person. Yeah. Know, and, and I just couldn't. Yeah. And All right. Was, so and, is and that and the thing that you didn't deliver supposedly? Yeah. Is that yeah. the th- yours? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so what we did, I thought, you know, honestly, I was like, uh, I think we came up with a good uh, solution. I'm always going to ultimately be a little bit 
um, dissatisfied because I, I had in my head, you know, if you remember the last scene, the last act of Cake, incredibly surreal, right. violent. It's almost it was almost like the Bizarro world. Yes, like if you were at the first level of hell in the first act, right, you dropped down to level nine. Yeah, for right. The final. It's, it's wild and crazy and loud yeah. and People colorful are like and eating like, cake yeah. and shooting each other. There's bl- like a weird brain surgery. Is right, like, you know, it's nuts. Yeah. And having that uh, in like a wide open boardroom with glass windows looking out over the city would have been gorgeous. Yeah. But we couldn't make it happen. And uh, yeah, and I think that uh, I think that left a bad taste. It left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. I think it honestly, like people from the ASC or Knight, you can feel free to email me if this is not the case. <laughs> well, this is a part of the story that I certainly haven't heard, but I mean, it seems to me like it's not like you didn't try. I tried, we tried very yeah, hard. It's not like you didn't, like, you intentionally didn't deliver the thing. It's just, yeah. it just couldn't be worked out. Yeah. And it was, uh, I, you know, I've never been that upset in a process. Like, huh. I'm not a temper tantrum thrower. Like, yeah. I'm usually actually pretty well known for staying cool under pressure. It's like I pride myself as a director on being yeah. able to be like, okay, everything is you falling, have to be falling right. apart. We're yeah. going to make it happen. It's okay, but like, there was a day when uh, some the some people had been sort of like promising space. Yeah. Finally, it finally fell through. How far in advance of Showtime are you at this point? Like a week or two. Like, uh, so you had to like totally yeah. fall back. So I mean, even if it had come through, the rehearsal would have been crazy. And you, it, yeah, but it that's would, okay. I mean, like we're used to that. Yeah, we're used to like picking up, like right. putting our little uh, wagon behind us and running over and get on the, the freight thing. elevator. Yeah. So okay, I, I don't mean to harp on this, but like I have to know, like how, like how could that possibly have been a problem for your funders? Because the reason I'm asking is because they're the people that are the best wired in to help you with this exact problem, right? I mean, I they're the ones who have like, the zero degrees of separation from the people that could make those kinds of decisions, right? So how can they... It seems odd to me that they would... I feel like I'm getting in trouble with this, but whatever, I don't care. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it, they also didn't come see the show. What? Um, so... Huh. The ASC sent some someone. We haven't applied for grants ever since because... Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what... And I haven't told the story because it... I felt shame around it. Like, huh. Honestly, I felt like um, I had messed up. Yeah, and I kind of uh, let people down or something. Yeah, like let people be... down, uh, and like, and I mean, I was I was pissed slash hurt about not being able to find the building that we needed. Yeah, you know, like that, not being able to make the exact piece of theater I wanted to do. Of course, was hurtful enough, but then also feeling like. I had let my funders down. Like I was never like my career. Like I had this opportunity, biggest grant we'd ever gotten. Oh. You know, like we're making. I up to that point, I'm making these plays for like maybe ten grand. Maybe right, right. if I get like an ASC grant, I'm like, okay, we're gonna make. Um, uh, Bohemian Grove, we did maybe fifteen thousand dollars was the budget, maybe, uh, and most of that was for vans and insurance. Yeah, but uh, and gunpowder, um, but. Uh, you know, this was like a, a sizable grant from these two organizations. And I was like, I mean, I was like, yes, we did Bohemian Grove. Right. And people loved it. And now I've got this, a little bit of recognition. Yeah. And the funders are like going to give us the money to make the next big thing. Your and trajectory is on the rise. Like yeah. Matt, Matt Cosper, theater maker. Now, finally, I'm going to be recognized. Yeah. For, and and the, the next work out of the gate turns out to be 
somewhat of a debacle. Yeah. Right? That's your experience. Yeah. Do you regret exempting yourself from this grant funded world of art creation or are you glad that it worked out that way in light of the work that you've created since? I think uh, in some ways I'm happy to not have to deal with it. You know, we'll get commissions sometimes, so a little bit of money will come in, but we're making the work on no money. Um, And it's not like that life that you left behind is is like a gold-plated path to riches at all. No, it it could have led to some stuff, but like, yeah, it's not like, uh, it's not the gold-plated path to riches. Um, You know, I've always wished that we would, uh, we'd find that one weirdo millionaire in town who gets a, a it. patron yeah who 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 gets it because that's kind of what you need yeah the patronage model actually worked perfectly well for centuries if not millennia yeah I mean, it, it absolutely you know kings noblemen just sort of funded I stuff am that they're a bit into. of a royalist at heart are you really i know you're a yeah i'm an anarchist Some, somebody's <laughs> got to be the center of the circle man <laughs> Um, yeah, as long as the king like is, it's like uh, you go back to the Golden Bough and Fraser, and like once a year the king is murdered by a sacred tree. Then uh, yeah, I guess I am a royalist. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't necessarily regret. I'm I'm glad I'm not dealing with like filling out grant applications. Yeah, because those suck. Yeah, um, I do wish that. And again, I would. I'm more than willing to admit that like probably 80% of this is just me and my little sad heart yeah. feeling like I feel uh, excommunicated from the yeah. like the theater community and from the like that whole thing yeah but I I, <laughs> I mean it, how how awful is that really I mean I mean like, what I mean honestly <laughs> if you're looking at like like what what's going on in that world right now you know what I mean like how's that going for all it's of them not going so well no not at all and yeah so I'm glad like we're making I've gotten to make really cool work with people that I love yeah it's it's a struggle I mean that the, it all comes down to resources which is just the which sucks like I'm making trying to make work with people who all have day jobs. And are and are exhausted, and then we're like, okay, can on Tuesday night can we get together for a couple hours yeah. and, and try to make? Yeah, but what you're doing is you're leveraging the priceless resource, which is the passion and the spirit and the intention that you're 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 making perfect use of that, and it seems like your opportunity that you're situated better than anybody to pursue is to fit in the work with the time and the constraint you know, here we are, it's COVID land. It's all, all this like grant funding stuff that like went off the rails at the time that that's not what it once was. And it wasn't that great really at that time. It it really was never that great, you know, and and now it's, I don't know if it still exists or not, but it's not what it once was. That's for sure. And so you have, you're, you're, you don't have a lease, you don't have employees, you know what I mean? And on, and on some level it's like, you know, in I, I suppose there's some part of society that would look at that and say, "Well, that you know, you're you're lacking in the trappings of legitimacy or solidity or something like that." But to me, that means there's just so much opportunity to to be oh, something yeah. completely different, to be non-traditional, not only in the work that's going up, but in the structure of the way it's going up. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a hundred percent accurate. We can do whatever we want to do. Like literally, we can just do what we want. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna make a movie. Um, the the yeah, 
so there there is freedom there and there is um there's room to grow and be agile um the hard part is just knowing um knowing how hard i mean i feel this way about myself but i i sound nobler if i say it about my colleagues you know knowing how much uh time is being donated to this work by people who have exhausting day jobs you know um and being like okay now do you want to come like put all of your heart and soul into this crazy thing that six people are going to come watch yeah but they do but they do um what does that tell you the fact that they're there yeah uh i mean is that like an actual question yeah that they're uh i think that they find some sort of value in it right although it's funny can i this is uh a, a very revealing story about me when I was a child, well into high school, and sometimes I still believe this, I literally believed at times that I was, um, I had some sort of intellectual handicap and that I was being, I was surrounded by people who were humoring me. <laughs> like that, uh, that, a, that a world had been built up around where like my family and friends were like, you're smart, Matt, and you were good, you're creative. But in fact, I was like, in a- This is not a construct that you created for yourself. This is what you literally believed? At times, I I was like... You wondered. I wondered. Okay. I was like, am I like actually in a padded room somewhere? Or if not, like I'm just like a high-functioning high person with a disability that people are... But that's like my own sort of like uh, little distrust of my, uh, my gifts. Yeah. But yeah, so on the one hand, like this... What I know... What I learned from people showing up to do the work is that either a they're still humoring me right or um yeah there is something to be gathered now i think i think to even say that in on some level perhaps even to think it is uh, totally counterproductive not just within yourself but actually in the way that you relate to the outer world because in a way like for example for you to say that you're in a way you're kind of devaluing my good taste right and like <laughs> as somebody who admires your work i'm kind of sitting here thinking like hey man you know maybe you ought to just like back up with that and <laughs> just know that like i i like good stuff and like the bohemian grove in particular is one of the most powerful experiences i've ever had you know yeah. uh, artistically um as an audience member and so it's a uh, uh, julia child famously admonishes the home cook no excuses no apologies so yeah. when you're serving dinner you don't tell people how it didn't go exactly the way that you wanted to and oh my god if only i'd pulled out the chicken a few minutes earlier or whatever and you don't yeah. you know apologize for the work because you you take away the joy uh yeah. when you do that of the people who are experiencing it and I, I firmly believe that the biggest thing that stands in the way of creative people being creative is some combination of their own shyness and sometimes their own good taste. Um, Ira Glass from uh, This American Life yeah. does a bit uh, where he he points out that like the biggest like uh, people who try to be creative oftentimes have good taste, and it's their own good taste that prevents them from pursuing their creative impulses because they know they're not good like when they start out they're not as good as they want to be and yeah, so like if, yeah. you're, if you're playing an instrument or something like you you're palpably aware that you're not that good at it and it causes a lot of people to just quit yeah whereas if you just persevere you have to keep the only way to get good at it is to keep doing it you know what i mean and yeah and i think that if any if uh if anything i i applaud myself for continuing i've been making 
20 years of like making weird like yeah. theater pieces that um and I know I mean I get it like I know people respond to them I know they're I know that they're good it's hard sometimes to, I mean uh, you know they're hit and miss man I mean <laughs> like let's let's be honest I mean be some honest. are better than others <laughs> I mean fair enough yeah um <laughs> People come to see him. People come to see him. But you know what? I mean, the question, I think, or a question, is: Are you proud of it? Like, do, when you look back, and it's it's your own work, but it's also the fact that the the XOXO core community is there with you in their off hours when they've worked all day and they still the thing they want to do most with their creative time. These are artists in their own right who want nothing more than to contribute to this. Can you look back over? 20 years of that work and say yeah we did something here i'm proud of that yeah yeah for sure i'm i'm immensely grateful and i think that what i'm most grateful for is uh is the people the people i've worked with and the people who've come to see the shows i'm i'm blown away by the people i've met who are fans of the work who who just always show up and like i don't see them socially i don't like you know maybe we'll like interact online a little bit or something but i don't really know them as as like uh, in a social way, but they're, they come to every show. If whenever, we, you know, we do it rarely, but whenever we're like, Hey, we could use a little bit of funding to make a thing happen. They write the check and they say, make Keep it doing work. what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Or there's like, there's one, uh, uh, I don't want to embarrass him. So I'm not going to say his name, but who is consistently, consistently like, well, wh where's the Patreon? Where's the Patreon? I want to give you money once a month. Where's right. the thing to do? Yeah. Um, so people, yeah, the people that come to see the work, the people who come to do the work, um, it's hard to to quantify because my, the thing I love about the theater is it's a it's ephemeral nature. Yeah, it's that we're making a thing that's that's uh, written on the wind and it's going to disappear. And I do know that we've created moments that have stuck with people. You know that they'll they'll never forget. And so I'm I'm very proud of that. I really am. What do you see is coming up for the future? Um, right now I'm working on stuff at school. Yeah. Um, what are I'm, you doing? We're uh, we're in rehearsals right now for a musical called Bright Star, which I love. It's a musical by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. It takes place in Asheville in the 40s, and there's some flashbacks to the 20s. It's a, like a folk bluegrass musical. Great story. I'm I'm really excited about this one. Um, so I'm working on that with the kids. Um, I'm just writing now. Uh, speaking of grants, I'm writing a grant with a, a friend who's in who's working in AI. Um, on trying to get some funding or do a residency um, with a group in England around um, using uh, AI to create work that interrogates uh, the um, the sort of surveillance state. Um, so we're we're working on sort of a proposal for that. I've got a couple books. Like, I've, it's weird. I've got I'm. I got a bunch of stories that are trying to get out of me and it's funny seeing like I one of them is explicitly a film like I'm writing it I, I'm still writing it in story form right now but it will become a film I know this um and then the rest I'm writing as uh their 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 prose projects you know one of them is this sort of memoir or fictionalized memoir about growing up um, you know, I, I knew Alan from the time I was 13 and then he died when I was 32. So 
and in that period of time, he was my teacher. He was my boss. He was a like, collaborator. He's my friend. He was like a roommate for a while. Like, like he was a very important figure. And I feel a bit haunted by him. And um, I finally, in the last year, have started writing material about, um, you know, and I think it's about, you know, he was one of the great loves of my life. I mean, I, truly, um, as a teacher and a mentor and a friend, but he's also like a really troubled dude who like had a, a, a pretty uh, intense fall. Um, and I need to, I need to work out what I learned, what I need to keep that I learned from him and what I can let go of. I'm really interested in questions of mentorship in general. I'm working with, um, a new program called Project Protege that, uh, a nonprofit called About Face Charlotte is doing where myself and four other sort of mid-career artists are mentoring five um, early career artists, specifically around social practice work. Um, but I'm very interested in this question of mentoring. You know, like I've been teaching for the past nine years. Um, and I had, you know, I, Alan was a mentor, but he <laughs> was not maybe necessarily like the best. Um, yeah, right. well, he wasn't maybe necessarily intentional about it, like conscious of filling yeah, that and, role yeah, in a structured sort of way. Yeah, and and reluctant, and like yeah. we, we connected over a lot of the like shared bad habits. Yeah, um, yeah, there may be some aspects of that. You mentioned the things that you can take with you and the things that you can let go of. There may be also some things you want to actively repel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so in this, I, th I think this this writing project is about him and me, but it's also about just what a mentor even is um I, I do think that whatever creative projects happen in this next you know whatever next chapter um let's say decade uh whether those are books movies more performance stuff i also i'm really interested in moving into more um focused work as a mentor and a coach isn't it an interesting thing about life in our world the way that things get handed down from generation to generation and i think about this a lot because the the legal profession is one in which mentorship is huge um and, and the and it's frankly it's an aspect of the work that i feel like i've really missed out on uh, yeah because i never had I mean, I had mentors, but I've never been able to fill that role uh, for someone else. And I've done some teaching, and I always try to, and I, I do these like one-off instructional things. There's nothing I like better than um, teaching somebody something or, you know, sharing or talk, just kicking it around, just talking yeah. about how we do what we do. I love that part of it, but I've never had a protege, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and um, it... It's, I don't know if it's an aspect of middle age. You know, I, don't, I think it is probably a function of aging. Part of it is sort of the, the sense of um, mortality and sort of the, 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 the time remaining not being unlimited the way that it seems when you're much younger. That's, I'm sure, a part of it. But I think another important part of it is also just attaining, like just having learned some stuff. <laughs> yeah. you get, it takes a while to get yeah. to a point where you've actually learned some stuff and you see folks who are at a different place in their 
development as creators yeah. or as professionals. And you just think like, gosh, you know, <laughs> I could make this easier. I, I could you. actually, yeah, you know, I got a, I got some pearls of wisdom that I'd love to, and it's, you know, and you can't obviously it's, it's, it's fraught in certain ways and there, there's pros and cons and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I hear what you're saying about the desire to do that and in a way to pay forward uh, the gifts that were given to you. Yeah. There's something, uh, spiritual happening there too the um in the book no country for old men which is also one of my favorite uh f- favorite books favorite films uh i'm a big fan of the coen brothers love them love them, love them. but uh tommy lee jones has that monologue about he's talking about one of he had a dream that um his father has handed him this fire they're like he's like right horseback in a snowy night and his dad's given him this, this fire and he's got to carry it forward it also comes up in the road the Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, they talk about that idea of carrying the fire. And um, that has always really resonated with me that there is, you know, I think my mom used to always say, um, when are you going to do more comedies, Matt? Your plays are so dark. And I was always like, I think my plays are really funny. Like, I think of myself as a comic artist. But there is there is some, you know, there's, there's a bleakness there too. But I I think that central to the work I'm, I'm trying to do uh, whether that's in creative pursuits or in life, is uh, carry the fire, carry it forward, and then pass it on to the next people because it's what you know it's what we do or what we should be trying to do. Um, and so I want to find ways to be more intentional about that. You know, you can do it in a in a in a classroom setting, but it's harder. Um, I find that most of the mentoring I'm doing at school is not happening in classroom or even in rehearsals. It's the handful of kids over the years who really respond to you and they come to the office during lunch and they want to ask you about a thing or, you know, later on, you know, we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of students who once they graduate um, will come and act in shows with me and now they're doing their thing down the line, but we're still in, in contact. That's, it's relationship, you know, it's that communion piece that in a, a theater performance, right? We were talking earlier about the number one thing I'm trying to engineer is the encounter um, and that communion. And I want that to happen in my work and I want to find ways that I can help it happen in, in my own life. Well, Matt, this has been a great conversation with me. I'm so happy <laughs> that you agreed to do this uh, as a fan and as a friend. Uh, I selfishly wanted you to be on the Steve Dunn podcast just so I could ask you these questions because I wanted to know the answers. So I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with me. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best for the future. Thanks for having me. It was fun.